The lives of many in our culture are nicely illustrated by a scene from a movie turned into an internet meme. A young man has a tattoo across his chest which says, No Regrets, spelled R-A-G-R-E-T-S. Get it? No regrets. In fact, I saw a news article recently that a woman who was vacationing in Mexico had a temporary tattoo, no regrets, in the same spelling on her chest. Only the problem was it wasn't going away. (laughs) There was a problem where it was still there for too long, and she's not sure if it's ever going to go away. In our culture, we try, many people try to live by this life motto, no regrets. I'm going to live my life and I'm not going to have any regrets whatsoever. And yet, we cannot help but screw it up. We can't help but mess up at every time so that we look back on past decisions and we wish we had done something we hadn't done or we wish we hadn't done something that we actually did. And we're filled with disappointment in ourselves, perhaps. If only I had studied harder in school. If only I had gone to that college or that trade school instead of this one. If only I had made the important decision in a different way. If only I had tried harder, been more determined, then life would have turned out differently. But of course, we're not content to be disappointed only in ourselves. We're disappointed often in others and ultimately even God. So that our if-only-ism turns not just to ourselves but to God. If only God had not allowed this to happen. If only God had designed things differently, then life wouldn't be so full of disappointment. It's almost as if we are looking on a kid who's controlling a drone, and we think if we could just get the controls to that drone, well, we could show them how to do it for real. We think somehow... If we had the controls of our lives rather than God, we would design it differently, and it would be better. Well, in our story this morning, Martha has similar thoughts when she says, if you had been here, Jesus, my brother wouldn't have died. Notice she's still trusting, in a sense, in Jesus for his power, She knows if he would have been here, he could have done something about it. He could have changed the course of her life and of Lazarus' life. No, it's more his purposes that she has questions about. And in the same way, we often don't question God's power, but we question his purposes, the way he's done things, the way he's designed things, the way things have turned out in our lives. We come to the story of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. The first part of it this this Sunday, this morning. And in this passage, Jesus displays that he is the resurrection 
and the life. He teaches this to Martha explicitly, and later he actually demonstrates that he is the resurrection and the life by raising Lazarus from the dead. But in this first part of the story, we see some common themes, some threads throughout, themes of Jesus's words and actions which seem to make no sense and confusion on the part of the people. Confusion for us, the readers, as we're reading it. Confusion for Jesus' disciples. Confusion for Martha and the others who are present there. Could not Jesus have healed this man? He healed the blind man. Could not he have done something about this situation? So for this morning, I want us to consider, in particular, how God designs our circumstances for his glory and for our good. God has a design for our circumstances. That means he's not just taking the material which he's given of life and turning it into something that will work for his glory and for our good, but that actually he's designing it from the beginning for his glory and for our good. So as we walk through this passage together, I want us to to see the answers to the question, why did Jesus let Lazarus die? And as we answer that question, it will also give us answers to our own circumstances. Why has God designed life this way? Look at our first answer in verses 1 through 4. Why did Jesus allow Lazarus to die? For the glory of God. First, we have some background information We have the characters in the story. There's Lazarus who is sick. There is Martha and Mary, and they are from Bethany. John makes a note here in verse 2 that it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with his ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. And we haven't read that story yet in the Gospel of John. It piques our interest into this relationship between Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Jesus and In a little while, we will see that that particular situation. But I think that detail, along with their speaking in verse 3, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And also in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This fills us into the background of the story that this is an intimate relationship between Jesus and this family. This is a close relationship. It reminds us that Jesus is not a stoic in these things. Yes, he does know all things. He's absolutely sovereign in his knowledge and in his purposes and in his plans. And yet that doesn't make him cold and calculated in his design. He has genuine love for this family. We also not only see the characters in the story, but we get divine insight into the sickness of Lazarus. We get a divine interpretation from Jesus concerning the sickness. What he says in verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, we don't know who he said this to. This is just, this is a detail though given to us as the reader to help us understand, to peer beneath the situation and to see what's going on. He says, this illness is not to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In other words, 
The sickness, its ultimate purpose does not lie in death. Its ultimate result does not lie in death. Here's where the purpose is. Here's where the result is. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, God is not like us. Jesus is not like us in often we, perhaps we try to appear to be something that we're not. Do you ever try to appear to be something you're not? You try to appear wealthier than you really are by the cars that we drive, by the clothes that we wear. I often try to appear cooler than I actually am. I remember when we were younger and we were posing for sports pictures, if we had the cut-off sleeves, we would pose like this. We'd put our, our fists under our biceps so that we appeared to be stronger than we actually were. Those of you on social media, that's what your profile is geared towards. You want to look more successful than you actually are. You want to look happier than you actually are. We put up this whole facade so that we can appear to be greater than we actually are. But God is not like that when he seeks glory for himself. Rather, he seeks to be seen as he actually is. He wants us to see his glory and not think, and not, not see that he's somehow greater than he actually is portraying himself to be, but that we would actually see him in all his brilliance, in all his beauty, in all his power, in all of his goodness, and that we would see and behold the glory of God and be in all of it. And this circumstance is designed for the glory of God. His aim that we would see him as he actually is. See, we see in, in a sort of dim through sort of a dim glass where we cannot fully apprehend the glory of God. Those in the Old Testament who did get a clearer picture of the glory of God, they were left undone. Isaiah, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw the glory of God, he was left undone. Peter, when he saw the glory of Jesus Christ, he said, Jesus... Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. We are, we are led to see our own sin and we are led to see his brilliance and beauty when we are able to clearly see the glory of God. And through this particular sickness, Jesus gives, a, Jesus gives us a picture of himself and of God as glorious. That he himself is sent from the Father. This sickness will lead to people seeing that he is who he says he is. It will lead to people seeing that he is the Son of God, and it will lead to them seeing him as glorious. How should we respond then to this, this understanding that Jesus allowed Lazarus to become sick and die for the glory of God? How, how can we accept this and apply this to the, own, to the circumstances in which we find ourselves, the difficult situations we find ourselves. What disappointment are you facing currently? What disappointments do you look back on in your life and you wish it was differently? As we look at the teaching of Scripture and as we look at this passage, we can see and we can trust that God is working it for His glory.
And if you say, well, that doesn't interest me very much, well, then we have other things to discuss, don't we? Because this is what the believer longs for, that Jesus Christ would be seen for who He really is, that He would be glorified, that people would gaze on Him and delight in Him. I remember a few years ago, we were at the beach, and there was an eclipse. It was that big eclipse a few years ago. And you could look up and down the beach, and people had their eclipse glasses on, and they were gazing at this beautiful sight up above. And this is what the Christian longs for, that everyone you know, that your neighbors, that your brothers and sisters, that your family members, that strangers would gaze upon the beauty of the glory of God in Jesus Christ and delight in Him. And you can trust in the midst of your circumstances that God is working for His glory. Even in those situations where we're confused or don't understand His actions or His words. Trust in Him. He is working all things for His glory. But also another way we can apply this is to consider our circumstances and how we're tempted to worry about bad or difficult situations. We're tempted to worry about all the bad things that will follow from a particular situation. Instead, we ought to give thanks and to wonder at what God might do. We know He's working it for His glory, so then this can lead us to give thanks to Him for working this for His glory and then to wonder, how, I wonder, how is God going to use this for His glory? How is He going to work it? How, how has He designed this particular situation in my life, this sickness or this trial or this broken relationship? How he, will He work this for His glory? And then we could also ask, who? We could wonder, who is God going to to grasp with this. Who might God be pleased to reveal his glory to through the midst of this situation? And that causes us to endure trials in a different way, in a different sense, because we know that ultimately he is working these things for his own glory. But notice in verses 5 through 16, he's also working it for the sake of his people. See, these are not opposed ideas we might think well God's working all things for his glory so I don't even matter but he is also working these difficult situations as hard as it may be to understand he is working them for the good of his people for the sake of his people notice in verse 5 I've already pointed out Jesus it says Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus verse 6 so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He stayed longer because of his love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus. That brings confusion to our minds. That doesn't make sense. It should say, since he loved them, he went right away to meet their need. Exactly what they thought they needed. But he waits longer. And then we see this discussion between Jesus and the disciples where we have further confusion. Jesus wants to go back to Judea. But the disciples are resistant. They don't want to do this. Why? Because, well, that's where we're going to get killed if we go back to Judea. That's where we're going to face persecution. They don't understand Jesus' actions and his words. And Jesus responds in this somewhat mysterious way 
about uh, these themes of day and night. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. I think there he is doing two things. One, he is saying, I must be at work for the glory of God. This points back to an Old Testament scripture, which speaks to the same thing. I must be about the bringing about the glory of God. It is day and soon it will be night when no one can work. I must be working the works he has given me. But also he's encouraging his disciples. You're walking with the light of the world. What do you have to fear ultimately if you are with me? Rather, it's those who are not walking in the light that will stumble. The disciples are confused again about Lazarus being falling asleep. They're really dull at understanding Jesus. But Jesus had spoken of his death, so he plainly tells them, Lazarus has died. And look at what he says in verse 15. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also that we may die with him. He's sure there's only danger and persecution and death which results in going back to Judea. But notice again these two phrases in particular. Since Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he stayed two days longer. He loved them, so he allowed Lazarus to die. And Jesus' words to his disciples, I'm glad that I wasn't there, in other words, to heal him, so that you may believe. In other words, he thought it was more advantageous for their faith and for Martha and Mary that they would see something extraordinary, something that couldn't be explained simply by ordinary means. Oh, he, he, was, he, was a, he took some medicine and he was able to get better from this. No, this would be an extraordinary work of Jesus Christ. And so he allowed Lazarus to die for the sake of his people. It was for their good, ultimately, even though how could you possibly understand that in the moment? It was for their good. This circumstance was designed out of love for the sake of his people. I can remember several occasions when my children were young where we would go to the doctor and it was an agonizing situation because it's one of those situations where I would have to hold them down while the doctor did something to them that hurt them. And they would look up at me with those puppy, di- puppy dog eyes and, what are you doing to me? Why are you hurting me? Why are you allowing this evil man <laughs> to hurt me? And they weren't able to see that ultimately it was working for their good. It was working, it would make them stronger, it would make them better, it would make them healthy, even though they couldn't understand it in the moment. It would get rid of an infection or a sickness that they have, but in the moment it was so difficult for them to understand. And brothers and sisters, we are children when it comes to interpreting the providence of God. This should give us, first, it should give us great certainty 
knowing the love of God for us even in the midst of our difficult situations because we know he's not only working for his glory, he's also working for our good. This is, it's motivated out of a true and genuine love for his people. He loves you if you are in Christ. He loves you. Get that in your mind. And he is working for your good. Even in the most difficult of circumstances, we can be assured of his love for us, even when we're not sure of his purposes. But also it should give us a great humility in interpreting the providence of God. We can't look at a situation and know precisely the details of why he's doing what we he's doing. We know ultimately it is for his glory and for our good, but we can't we can't siphon out the details of how it all works out. John Flavel, the one of the Puritans, said some providences are better read like Hebrew backwards. Now, I know some might say, well, Hebrew is not backwards, English is backwards. Right, Tracy. But we often need to get on the other side of our providences to be able to look back on them and to see the ways in which God was working for his own glory and for his good. And it may be that we will have to wait all the way into eternity to be able to see the threads of the design of God and how they work into a beautiful tapestry, which echoes and redounds to his glory. And then we will see, ah, it was for my good. It was growing me in my faith. It was sanctifying me. It was purifying me. We, we perhaps won't see it for years and years and years and perhaps not even until we are together with Christ in heaven. But be assured, he is working for his glory and for the good of his people. And let me read for you one passage from the Baptist Confession of Faith on divine providence. Here they point out several ways in which God works through his providence for the good of his people, even when it doesn't seem like it's good. It says, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them up to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends, so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect by his, is by his appointment for his glory and for their good. Often, God's providence allows us, reveals to us hidden sins, things we weren't aware of, weaknesses, areas of unbelief, and then also moves us to rely upon him more fully, to trust in him, to lean upon him for his grace for us. But finally, see in verses 17 to 27 that Jesus allowed the death of Lazarus for the glory of God, for the sake of his people, 
and four, a, a fuller revelation of his own identity. A fuller revelation of his own identity. We see this conversation between Martha and Jesus. And Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. It was, it was over as far as everyone was concerned. Many Jews had come to the place. They too would see the glory of God. Martha goes out to meet Jesus and she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She, she still affirms that she trusts in him. She still affirms that she trusts that he has been sent from God and that she has a special, unique relationship with God. And yet, I still think there's some, some reticence on her part to even be thinking about a resurrection here on the spot. And we see that because of words that come in a little bit. She knows that if the Lord had been there, her brother would not have died. She does have a sense of his power, but she doesn't have a full sense of his power. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha's mind immediately goes to the future hope of the resurrection. She affirms that, yes, I know. I believe in the resurrection as we proclaim this morning, as we will proclaim again as we confess the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection. I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus drops a bomb and says, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm what you're looking for ultimately. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then in the the following verses, he explains what he means by each of those statements. In verse 25 B, he says, he explains what he means by that he is the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Any and all who have placed their faith in Jesus, the resurrection, will also take part in resurrection. Even if they die physically, they will be raised spiritually and gloriously and live forever with him. He himself is the resurrection and he imparts resurrection to those who believe in him. And in verse 26, he explains what it means that he is the life. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Whoever lives spiritually in Jesus Christ through faith will never experience that which is truly death. You have have cheated death in a sense through trusting in Jesus, who is life. He's what it means to live. Now, notice soberly the opposite of this. If one does not trust in Jesus, when he dies, when she dies, she will experience that which is truly death forever. Let that be impressed upon us for a moment. Death. Separation from God. That which is truly death, the wrath of God against the sinner experienced forever. And it's only when we allow ourselves to take in what this means that we were also able to to take in what it means that we have been rescued 
from death. Instead of wrath for all eternity, you who are in Christ Jesus have received his grace and favor and love for all eternity. And he turns, he turns this statement to Martha and says, do you believe this? And she affirms. She does believe that he is the Messiah. He's the son of God. He was the one who we've been longing for. He's the one who we've been waiting for. How do you respond to Jesus' question? Do you trust in him? When you die, will you have life? Or will you suffer the punishment of God for all eternity? Will you escape death? If so, it will only be by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is doing here for Mary. He's turning her gaze away from her own difficult circumstance. He's even turning her gaze away ultimately from the future hope of resurrection, and he's placing it upon himself, who is the resurrection and the life in the present, standing right there before her. In our difficult situations, we are tempted to look only at our sufferings, only at the bad things that are going on and the bad things that will follow. But what, where we need to turn our gaze is upon Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. This is where we ultimately even find hope for the future resurrection. It's not, it's not some vague hope disconnected from Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. We should turn our eyes instead away from our circumstances to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our life. He's our hope. He's our salvation. And the reason he's our hope and salvation is because even though he is the life, he laid down his life so that we could have life. Let me take you really quickly back to verse 4 of chapter 11. When Jesus says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This theme of the Son of God being glorified throughout the book of John is, is deeper than we might first see in these sentences. For the glory of God means not only that it will result in people seeing Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and they will think, wow, he is from God. He did this amazing thing. In the, in the book of John, the Son of God being glorified means and refers to the Son of God being lifted up on the cross. The Son of God being lifted up in resurrection. The Son of God being lifted up in ascension. This miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead would lead Jesus to his own death. This is what makes a, a decisive turn in the Gospel of John in chapters 11 and 12 and 13 to the Pharisees and the Jews seeking all the more to kill him. This will lead to the glory of the Son of God by him being lifted up on the cross. For the glory of God, 
and for the good of his people, for all who come to him in faith. And this lifting up of Jesus on the cross is exactly what we celebrate in the supper together. Jesus, the author of life, the sovereign over all, the one who is the resurrection and the life, laying down his own life, his body being broken for us, his blood being poured out for the forgiveness of sins so that we could have that which is truly life in him. So as we prepare to take the supper together, I want us to consider what the table represents, why we come to the table, and how we come to the table. The table represents the person and work of Jesus Christ who humbled himself by becoming a human, by being born of a virgin, who humbled himself further by being a servant, by suffering, by being beaten and tortured, and even humbling himself to the shameful death on a cross for our sins. The table represents his perfect life that we should have lived and his sacrificial death which we should have died for our sins we come to the table as a reminder of this work and to receive spiritual nourishment from god as we believe as we trust in him that we have been saved by his sacrifice sheerly by his grace not because of anything in us not because of any deserving actions or thoughts but simply because of jesus christ who was crucified for us we also come to the table rejoicing this is this is our life jesus is your life rejoice in this supper as we receive it by faith we rejoice because of what he has done and because of who he has made us we are brothers and sisters in christ we are heirs of the kingdom of God. We are children of God on whom he places his perfect favor. And therefore, we should come to the table with a combination of repentance and humility and rejoicing. We come recognizing that we never lived as we would have hoped, that we still sin daily, though we desire to live for God's glory, we come with humility, receiving His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We come understanding we are completely unable to gain God's favor by any other means except by Jesus Christ. We come with great gratitude, how we ought to live every day of our lives, and we come with great joy because of His goodness to us. So as our servers come forward, let us, Reflect upon these things and confess our sins to God.